All right, everyone. I hope we're doing well. I'm Thomas Thompson. This is my podcast, Decay of Discourse. Some of you have been listening for a while. Some of you are just joining. It's nice to have you with us. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. James Diamond, an educational technologist out of Johns Hopkins University. I value his insights into the application of educational games into learning environments. But also, he's not boring. So you can rest assured that you're getting an hour of not only substantive, but enjoyable podcasting. We sat down to talk about some principles of digital teaching, gamification and game-based learning and education. We discussed the concept of historical empathy, and I hope we clarified some common misconceptions, not just about education, but about the role of different technologies in it. As always, if you want to learn more about my guest this week or about the topics we covered, you can head over to our website, decayofdiscourse.com. I link some accompanying materials for this episode and others that you might find interesting. One of the links is Mola Industria's website, which is a trip of a site for an independent game developer working against the idiocy and tyranny of mainstream media, mainstream entertainment. That's not a plug. I just like what they're doing. Anyway, if you want more, go to decayofdiscourse.com. Again, my guest this week is Dr. Jim Diamond, and this is Decay of Discourse. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Jim Diamond, a professor of education at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So like many teachers, when COVID pushed classes online, I came to a few realizations. And I'm curious if you take issue with any of these. Moreover, I'm curious if you have any more lessons that you learned to add to this list. I'll share two in specific. There's more, but I think these two underlying principles would serve teachers well if they are struggling to figure out their role in distance learning. One is that I realized simply digitizing the lessons I had for in-person classes is entirely inadequate and misguided. And the second realization I had was that doing a class online, regardless of the content I'm teaching, is a completely different kind of class than the one I would do in person. Those are the two that I kind of realized myself. What have you seen, or do you take issue with either one of those? No, I don't. I certainly don't take issue with with either of those. Um, so a few things, just as a former um, as a former classroom K twelve teacher myself. So I taught elementary science many many years ago. Um, it's very difficult for me to imagine, and this is as a professor of educational technology, um, to moving almost overnight from traditional on uh, traditional face-to-face teaching of elementary age students um, to online learning environments for um, a bunch of reasons that uh, that we can discuss but the other thing is that as a professor in the higher ed space I teach predominantly online with adults and even in the best of times I think online education is still online asynchronous education is still quite challenging um, for a bunch of reasons. But to me, the biggest one has to do with if you strip away all of the technology, and I think that's not necessarily a bad place to start, right? Mm-hmm. So what would it be like if you didn't have technology at your disposal when you're teaching? What is it that you do? Well, you communicate with your students pretty frequently. You give them feedback. You look for cues. You look for verbal cues. You look for nonverbal cues. You find ways to have your students engage one another generatively, deliberatively, productively. You find ways to have them engage with you in real time. Okay. So those are, I think, some pretty fundamental practices to the craft of teaching, regardless of subject. Um, and now start introducing technologies, okay? So how does a specific tool, a specific technology or environment support those 
what I think are very basic practices for me. Well, if I'm not prepared to think about that, right, if I'm not prepared to think about how the affordances or the capabilities of any given technology can actually support those practices, well, it gets to be really challenging, number one, right? Yeah. Um, and it speaks to the need for education and professional development. But again, even strip all of those things away, it's simply not the same thing. Online education, online formal education, or asynchronous or even synchronous online formal education is not the same thing as face-to-face -face synchronous education, being together physically, being together in real time, being able to respond to one another in real time, being able to look for one another's cues in real time. I think these are things that, you know, don't necessarily translate or don't necessarily translate yet to the online space. I think I think I see that. I mean, can, looking at those considerations that I listed and then your reaction to them, I think it opens up another question. What are the definite changes that something like a new technology in the classroom bring with it? I'm not sure there are any definite changes, right? Because uh, a very unsatisfying answer, but it's complicated, <laughs> yeah. right? As you know, classrooms and schools are complicated social environments. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no such thing, in my opinion, as simply introducing a tool, right? Anytime we introduce an artifact into an environment that has human agency and human intentions involved, it's going to be complicated. Um, so I think that any given technology, any given tool, a hammer, a pencil, a VR headset, uh, a tablet, um, has certain affordances, right? So the, the idea that any given tool has features that um, allow for certain behaviors, mm. right? Now, that is often a kind of relational concept because whether something allows for certain behaviors can depend on the point of view of the individual, right? But there's this notion of tools having affordances and human beings having effectivities, right? So the ability to make use of those affordances. So when you put a tool in an environment, something's going to change, Yeah. right? Because it is, it's a different tool and in all likelihood, it's a different set of affordances. Maybe, I mean, it, which is not to say that every tool is unique, yeah. right? Um, sometimes they build on each other, but even so, any new tool is going to introduce some new set um, of possible outcomes and possible behaviors. Um, now, how the tool gets used is another part of this complicated scenario, right? So how is a, how is a teacher thinking that tool ought to be used? To what end is the teacher using the tool, mm -hmm. right? So... Um, we have, this, we have this concept in education of pedagogical content knowledge, right? So in the craft of teaching, um, there is a kind of body of knowledge, pedagogy, um, that teachers have to help their learners learn content. And we also have this, nowadays in the ed tech space, this additional notion of technological pedagogical content knowledge, right? Mm. So a teacher has to have the content knowledge. She's got to have knowledge of the pedagogy around how to teach it. And now in addition, she's got to have knowledge of how tools come into that space, right? So how can tools, again, what are the affordances of these tools, how can they support her objectives? How can they support her learners' objectives? There's a lot of different yeah. objectives going on among those learners. There's a lot of different effectivities going on among those learners. Um, so, so again, it's, it's complicated. And I think the answer is probably sort of somewhere in between those two, um, yeah. uh, those two poles uh, that you portrayed. I'm glad you bring that up because really what I'm trying to do with that question is clear up a lot of the misconceptions I hear, you know, in the, in a school, you'll see a new, a new platform or a new technology introduced and it's like okay we have this new thing we spent a bunch of money on it we have to use it all the time it's like it's that you feel like obligated to use it consistently and constantly 
And I feel like that is a bit misguided. It's a tool. You use it where it makes sense to use it. I mean, simply because it's new and it will help with a certain area or help with a certain thing that you were doing doesn't mean you have free range just to try to shove it in everywhere that you, you can. Cause that, I think that would actually undermine, you know, what a teacher is actually trying to do. It would create all kinds of different problems. I, absolutely. And it's a really good point, right? That, that, um, for as create as creative as teachers can be with tools classrooms and we're talking about classroom environments right now right but classroom environments are also constrained environments as you know mm -hmm. right school buildings are constrained environments they sit in social systems and there are systems of accountability that surround those schools right and then we have to have questions about well are the tools that are getting used are they supporting what the people in charge or whoever it is to whom teachers are accountable, are those tools supporting what those people think are important, mm -hmm. right? Now they may or may not, often they don't, to be, you know, to be very honest with you, yeah. right? Um, and it also comes to this place where accountability regimes, again, as you know, can be pretty restrictive, right? If you're worried about teaching to a test, if your job depends, on students performing certain ways uh, uh, using certain indicators, then that technology had better be able to move your kids toward those objectives, right? And if it doesn't, and if it's not clear to you as a teacher that it doesn't, well, you might not use it, one, right? Mm -hmm. And again, you just might not have the, the training um, to, to use it. So, you know, ed tech is also a big business, right? There's a lot of money in the educational technology business, yeah. which means there's a lot of agendas behind the use of these technologies. A lot of money gets spent by school systems. A lot of effort gets put into selling these technologies to school systems. And there can be a lot of pressure brought to bear on the use of these technologies, but without clear aims. Yeah. Right? It's not mm -hmm. always the educators that are driving the objectives associated with the use of, of technology. It can be. I mean, I, I'm sort of dwelling, I think, on, on the more negative examples. There's plenty of positive examples. Yeah. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, if, for me, who's somebody who's been in the ed tech space for a long time, I'm pretty cynical. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, I'm, I, and, and I think there's, I think there's good reason to be um, cynical about the amount of money um, and the amount of pressure um, mm -hmm. that is placed onto, onto school systems and ultimately educators to use these technologies, often unproven. Because when, I mean, when you find the issues of lack of training, this administrative pressure to use these tools, and they kind of compound one another, it, it, it's a, it creates a sticky situation. As you were talking about, you know, it, well, it's improved means to unimproved ends, right? If you're forced to use it, this tool might be a very great tool for the thing that it's supposed to aid with. But, you know, if you're trying to use, I'm trying to think of an example here. If you're trying to use your smart board for a Socratic seminar, you're going to be like, well, I could probably just do this better, you know, talking to my students. I don't think I, I need, a, need smart a smart board, board for this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that it's important to bear in mind that, that tools can support motivation, right? Not automatically, right? Mm -hmm. This too is a, is a complicated concept. But I think it becomes interesting to think about, okay, we, you're right, we can do a Socratic seminar. We don't, we don't need a smart board. We don't, I mean, we don't really need anything except yeah. a bunch of people sitting around talking. But it might be that not all kids are interested in that format, or it might be that mm -hmm. not all learners are motivated by that particular format. And then we can think about, okay, well, could we introduce other tools that maybe do become more motivating because they have these affordances, right? So that, to me, that's a really interesting thing to start yeah. thinking about. But I think that's a, much, that's a much more intentional use of the technology than saying, well, we're just going to use a smart board because we have it, and this is what we're going to do, as opposed to, well, I'm going to use a smart board because it can do A, B, C, and D. And I think that might be helpful in helping me meet aims one, two, and mm -hmm. three. And it might motivate. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it might introduce um, some more uh, 
some more opportunities for motivation. And I think that that concept really isn't anything, anything new. I mean, a teacher has been a catalyst for engagement, for motivation since before we had smart boards or whatever it is. So it's really just an extension of something the teacher was doing, which I think leads me to my next point. You know, I'm, I'm currently of the idea that a lot of what we do in the, a lot of the technology introduced in the classroom are extensions of what a teacher has already been doing. You know, a smart board or a PowerPoint is just an extension of a teacher's notes that they would have given to the kids, you know, or a Kahoot would be an extension of a teacher's ability to do formative assessment or something. Right. But also there's this idea that's concurrent with that, that the character and quality of a medium end up share, uh, shaping the character and quality of the discussion. And it seems that when, you know, a new technology is introduced into a society, a business mechanism, or a classroom, the resulting change isn't the old way of doing things plus the new technology, right. but it's something kind of new altogether. Right. And I'm saying that, and it feels like it's a contradictory statement, because we were just saying how, well, this is nothing new. You know, a teacher has always been trying to motivate its students, always been trying to serve as a catalyst for engagement. So what are those base requirements, in your opinion? For a piece of educational technology to have much utility for teachers is it flexibility is it training and the freedom to say hey this is a tool you need to use it where appropriate uh, i think it's both of those things to be sure okay um and 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 possibly more the latter right so a teacher being prepared and you know maybe to go back to this idea of technological pedagogical content knowledge which is not you know it, it, that's a problematic concept but it's a useful one um but a teacher being prepared to look at a tool and say this tool can help me meet my ends um in this situation for these kids right and being able to sort of have a clear um theory of action associated with that that to me more often than not is what's going to determine a successful implementation mm -hmm. of a particular tool, right? Um, so there's the notions of just feasibility and usability. What's the likelihood that any given tool is going to get picked up? Well, it probably, or maybe along the same lines of the likelihood that it's going to get picked up anywhere else. If it's got a bad interface, it's probably not going to get picked up, yeah. right? Um, if it's a confusing um, apparatus uh, for people who are working in complicated situations, again, it's probably not going to get picked up. Um, and, and this is where, you know, I, I think it's, it's important. It's, it's not only teachers that need to be prepared to do this, but it's the developers of technologies, right, that also need to be thinking. Um, in these lines, they need to understand something about the people, their, the, the users for whom they are producing these tools, and the environments in which they're working. And so, you know, I think if you have teachers who are prepared to think in, in, along the lines of, okay, what are my objectives? What does this tool bring to that? How do I think I can use it to meet those objectives? And on the other end, developers thinking about, okay, well, what do we know about what we think teachers' objectives usually are, and how can we develop this thing for them and their kids such that those objectives can be met? I mean, that to me is a sweet yeah. spot. Now, that's that's an ideal situation. Again, we're sort of, you know, we're setting aside any pressures from outside of the classroom mm -hmm. um, that are also going to constrain or open up the space for for the use of that tool. Yeah, what you described definitely seems to be the ideal. However, I think the main critique I hear often is that I hear a lot of teachers concerned that they're moving into the business of teaching in which, you know, a lot of people trying to sell them stuff or tech bros who've never been in the classroom saying, hey, we have this new thing, you should use it. And you spend money just to find that, like you described, it's a poor interface or it's something that they would not have picked up usually. That's a, uh, there's a lot of hucksterism in, in education. A lot of people trying to sell you stuff, which is definitely something I did not realize until I went into it, you know, when you're looking for materials and whatnot. And it's a lot of stuff is behind paywalls or you have to buy the subscription or sign up and, you know, pay a lot of money up front. It's, it definitely seems to be counterintuitive. The education yeah, yeah, there is a lot of money. <laughs> people don't consider the economics of education. There's a lot of money. I mean, you got textbook companies with right. so we much. Had better days, right? But there yeah. was at one time it was textbook companies that were at the top of the mountain, mm -hmm. 
right? And they, I mean, the, the, that's a situation where you had textbook companies that had whole states adopting curricula yeah. based on the product, based on the production of those books. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty significant position of power. There's a, there's a lot of money um, to be made there. And, you know, um, my, given my own philosophical dispositions, I think the profit motive is always going to be problematic in, in the education mm -hmm. space. I don't, think it's going to go away so we just need to be attentive to it we need to be uh, and we need to be aware of it and and i think we as educators need to um be able to evaluate we need to be able to evaluate the tools we need to be able to evaluate the motives of the people who are bringing us the tools and we need ultimately to be able to evaluate our kids need our learners needs so. so the introduction of new tools in the classroom typically it seems to be a a top-down kind of thing you know the district buys the smart board for all the classrooms do you think it would be more effective than if the teacher goes to the district and says hey these tools are what we could use you know maybe you should consider it or do you think the current way of going and procuring these tools is just how we're going to have to deal with it well you know there too the answer is it depends right so for example if you take um like take the New York City public schools, right? So I live in New York City. Okay. Um, and the New York City public school system um, is, is in some ways um, a rather decentralized school system, right? Such that each school is sort of its own little business entity, right? With the, with the principal sitting at top and then assistant principals and teachers. And, and the principals can have pretty wide a pretty wide range of power to making mm -hmm. procurement decisions about what they're going to use. I mean, there's standardized curriculum that everybody has to follow, but then outside of that, they get to make um, decisions. And there, you know, in that model, I do think you can have examples of what you might think of as bottom-up decisions being made, right? Um, and I've seen, I've seen that happen in a couple of different ways. I mean, so there's the sort of, um, almost mythological evangelist, right? Some teacher who just is incredibly passionate about a thing um, and is, is sort of able to get uh, the other educators and maybe administrators uh, in the building um, on, on board with that thing. And I have seen some examples of that. Um, I've seen examples of um, teachers working together in grade bands or even uh, across multiple grade bands um, and coming together periodically and thinking about the scope and sequence um, and thinking about, again, very intentionally about what are the kinds of tools that we want to use to help us move toward these objectives and how are we going to systematically evaluate those tools um, to determine whether they're going to help us mm -hmm. um, meet our goals. And I, the, those goals aren't necessarily just the standardized learning objectives, yeah. right? The goals could be, you know, um, I mean, it could be something as obscenely broad as I want my kids to be creative. I mean, you're probably going to have to get um, a bit more focused than that, yeah. but it could be something like that. And if you're thinking along those lines, well, then you can think, okay, well, for these kids, this kind of tool um, might afford that. So I think that's an effective model also. Um, I, I think the, the top down, um, which is obviously another model in, in districts where much more of the power is concentrated um, at the top, that's not to say it can't be done well, right? I mean, if there are effective communication mechanisms all you know, along that whole vertical there, um, and if people are sort of largely in agreement or at least large, largely in understanding about what the shared vision and understanding is, um, then, then I think that kind of adoption can, can work as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, have, having dove right into the conversation, I, I missed laying some of the groundwork. You're a professor of education at Johns Hopkins. Uh, what's your research focus there? Uh, so broadly, I am in the area of digital media learning, but most of my research over the years has been um, in game-based learning and more, more recently gamification and gameful learning. Most of my work has been yeah. in, in game-based learning. So I, I want to I focus in on the role of gaming in education. Many people's ears, you know, the average public's ears perk up at the concept of gaming 
in education. It seems that while games and play, I mean, we all know they're integral parts of a child's development, schooling and gaming are seen by the general public as two separate institutions. I was having this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. She's like, they played games in kindergarten, but you stop playing games by the time you get to college. And I'm like, no, I had games in college, you know. Perhaps that's a consequence of people's conception of what a game is, you know, Monopoly, Scrabble, Xbox, Halo, those are games. Because we're not, when, we were, when you're talking about games in the classroom, you're not saying that students are sitting in front of the smart board playing Xbox. Like there's, you know, there's something no. to it. <laughs> that, no, that, that's right. Um, so I think it's, in, so it's important to distinguish between um, gamification, right? Mm -hmm. And game-based learning. And, and I think a useful way to distinguish between those two is gamification is the idea that we can use certain elements that we associate with gaming, things like scoring points, things like leveling up, things like having access to certain privileges based on um, certain accomplishments in a game, but using those in what we typically think of as non-gaming environments, right? So we would typically think of a classroom as a non-gaming environment, mm -hmm. right? Um, and gamification has been around probably as long as classroom teachers and classroom teaching has been around, right? If somebody's putting stars up on a board yeah. um, for, uh, you know, certain activities um, and suddenly, you know, uh, one kid has 10 stars and another kid has five stars and another kid has three and another kid has one. Well, now we have a leaderboard as well, right? So we have a point system and we have a leaderboard sort of showing kids progress. So, that's the idea of gamification, which is largely associated um, with behavior change, right? So, so the idea that those types of activities can serve as, or, or those types of features can serve as extrinsic motivators to help kids, to, to sort of push kids to engage in certain behaviors. Game-based learning is associated, right? So again, we have those features, mm -hmm. but now they're in the context of a game. And, and the thing about a game is that a game is a logical system, right? So it's sort of a, a little self-contained world yeah. based on rules, right? There's a rule system for a game. And then there's human beings that have agency and they put inputs into the game. And based on those inputs, right? The rules sort of look at the input and they say, okay, this input was such, when the input is such, this is what has to happen in the game space. And that's the dynamic, right? So we have this kind of a logical system. And in theory, if game-based learning, if those inputs, the mechanics, the things you can do in games, if they are closely tied to the types of competencies we're looking to develop through learning objectives, then the gameplay itself should be an indicator of learning, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So if you have to master some concept associated with geometry in order to be able to move an object in a game, well, if the object is moving yeah. um, and it's moving efficiently or whatever the rule system says, right, then you might be able to make some inferences that says, okay, well, this kid in the context of the game is, is, is showing performance that suggests he or she has some understanding of those mm -hmm. concepts. Right, so game-based learning in some ways becomes a kind of uh, performance-based assessment, and that's typically what I'm talking about when I'm talking about game-based learning. Right, is the design of games whose mechanics are close. That the, the mechanics are the verbs, the things you can do in a game. Those verbs are closely tied to the verbs outside of the game. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I, I just want to clear up any misconception for people who are listening who aren't involved in any kind of you know educational system right now and they're like games you know because well there's, there's a, a broad I, range of terms there's a broad there's range a of meanings of behind the term yeah for sure right so so I, you could i i think there's a lot of people who associate play that that play is frivolous right play is something you do when you're not being serious Right. Although, play is something you do. Mm -hmm. well, I'm not saying I suggest. With this no, term. I'm saying, I, although we I, understand that, you know, play, you know, modifies behavior. There's all kinds of, you know, tendencies to different habits that you pick up from gaming. For sure. And that's where, you know, I also think we don't want to, we don't want to separate games and play. 
right? We don't mm -hmm. want, because if we're, if we're just talking about game-based learning, I mean, game-based learning could also just be an awful grind that is, is going to kill playful experiences for yeah. kids, right? If the stakes are such that if I give you a game, if I as a teacher give you a kid uh, a game and say, you know, you'd better do very well in this game. If you don't, you're getting held back. Or what, I mean, that's quite yeah. extreme, but you understand my example. Well, I don't think we have a playful experience anymore, <laughs> yeah. right? We suddenly have a high stakes performance-based yeah, yeah, yeah. assessment that is no longer playful. But if we don't do that, if we maintain um, the characteristics that we usually think of as playful, right? Voluntary, mm -hmm. low stakes, intrinsically motivating, done for pleasure, right? Now those things may or may not all be there or they may you know, be there in, in certain degrees. But if we can keep those things integrated with the game-based learning, then I think that's when I think we have more powerful, potentially, tools. Now, again, it depends on the system in which it sits. Yeah. Right? So I've, I've, over the years, one of the biggest concerns, less so nowadays, but it's, it's still there for sure, but I would say, you know, 10 years ago, um, doing some pilot testing in the New York City public schools just trying to get teachers to say, okay, I'll bite, I'll do it. I, I'll do it, you know, I, I, I buy what you're selling, you know, you're telling me, okay, my kids are gonna learn something. But one of the things that I would hit right away is, well, I can't sell this to a principal. I, I can't sell this to, you know, I can't sell this to parents. These are games, um, this is frivolous. And those, those are realities, yeah. right? Those are very, if you have parents saying, you cannot have my child playing games in school. That is not what schooling is about. Yeah, yeah, well, then exactly. in some ways, no matter how good we get at, uh, you know, coming up with evidence that these might be useful tools, th those environmental constraints are still going to be there. So I often hear the term simulation being used in classrooms. You know, we're going to do, you know, for example, in undergrad, I had a few uh, history courses in which they did the uh, reacting to the past games. And, they didn't call them games. They called them simulations. simulations. What, what's the what's the uh, what's the difference there between you know game based learning or when you hear some, is it just a semantic you know workaround so they don't have to say game because there's that or is it or is uh, it a new well, kind I, of thing? I think, I think that's part. I for sure I think that's part of it. I, I mean I think it, a, simulation just has a less playful ring to it and therefore yeah. uh, it's easier to buy into. Um, I think there are some people who would argue that a simulation is something that doesn't have a win state or a lose state, right? And that for something to be a game, um, it, mm -hmm. there has to be, um, there has to be a win state and there has to be a lose state. Otherwise, otherwise it's play, yeah. right? Or, or a simulation. Um, I don't know as educators that we necessarily need to get, you know, to get bogged down um, at that level. Um, you know, think of the science yeah, yeah. simulators you might have used as a kid, right? That, oh, if I turn up the heat this much, look what happens inside the beaker. Um, I would call that a simulation. I probably wouldn't call it a game, right? I don't yeah, know yeah. that I can, win, unless I'm making up a sort of win state in my head. Well, look, if I get the thing to boil over, then I'm really happy. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yes, I think, I think you make a good point. I think make, calling something a simulation potentially makes it more palatable. So could you walk us through an example of, of a game or of a simulation or something that you've seen implemented in a classroom that you're like, oh, this is what a successful version of this looks like? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so an example that's near and dear to my heart um, is a project that I worked on for a bunch of years. Um, so uh, there's a, there is a group of social historians at the City University of New York called the American Social History Project. Um, they've been around a long time, founded by a, a social historian named Herb Gutman. Um, about 15 years ago, probably a little bit more than that, um, they embarked on creating a series of games. These games were called Mission US. Um, and these were first person digital role playing games set in historical contexts, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's interesting about history games um, is that when one example that comes to mind for a lot of people is civilization. 
right? So civilization is a kind of, is an interest that sort of sits in this interesting in between space. It's not quite a simulation. It's not quite a game because yeah. you get to tweak all of the kinds of things you get to do in a simulation, but there's a win state and a lose state. The interesting thing about civilization is it's a much more kind of social science-y approach to history, right? That, well, there's a million factors or whatever the number of variables are um, that go into uh, human events, including the weather and, and whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, and we can tweak those and then we could see what would happen. Well, in, in Mission US, it's a different take on history, right? Which is to um, think about uh, the agency of human beings in history who are subject to structural forces, right? So sort of the, the sociological surround, mm -hmm. um, the structures that um, influence how we perceive and how we act, but then a very sort of psychological approach um, to history as well, right? Which is that um, these were historical agents. These were people with intentions. These were people with motives um, who were doing things on, on any given day. Um, and these games were role-playing, right? So, so they asked you as a player, um, for example, uh, in the game that I did my dissertation on, to, to play the role of uh, the apprentice to a, a printer, to a, um, a patriot, in the sense that they would have used that term then, um, a, a patriot printer, right? A mm -hmm. member of the Sons of Liberty, so a, a, a group ultimately invested in, um, in breaking away from, um, from the English. Um, and, and playing that role and being given choices that would in all likelihood have been open um, yeah. to a person, to a 14-year-old boy in that place, in that time, right? Um, and giving players um, some freedom to think about, well, what, happened, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I did this, right? And then having that actually play out in the game, right? Mm -hmm. So again, this notion of the game as a system, I do this, the game somehow responds, I've got some feedback, and now I need to interpret it. So that's, that's one piece, right? So the game becomes this interesting environment um, in which to have some experiences and potentially some really interesting experiences because I get feedback pretty quickly. I do something, something happens yeah. in the game. Now, I can't make any assumptions, especially as an educator, about whether or not my kids are attending to that feedback right and mm -hmm. reflecting on it right so there's we're also just as concerned about metacognition here as, as we are with anything else um but it's certainly different than writing a paper right and i'm not poo-pooing writing papers it's it is a different experience right so in a game i can do something something changes in the game space there's perhaps there's a different kind of agency in writing a paper there is another kind of agency right but definitely what does not happen in writing a paper is that the world about which i am writing in a paper does not move it does yeah. not change in response right yeah that's arguable i mean because you're interpreting in certain ways but but i i think you get my point so there's that which is often, and I should say, in the research in game-based learning, for a long time, that was the focus, right? Was the kid and the game. And that there's all this telemetry, there's all this data that's being collected as the kid's playing the game. And again, if, if we believe that the game is adequately aligned to certain learning objectives, then if we look at the behaviors in the form of data, we might start to make some inferences about learning. But my interest is that plus the environment in which it sits. And yeah. what I think a successful implementation is, is when you have a tool like that, but then you have a teacher who is also able to look at those activities, right? Monitor his kids' activities, either mm -hmm. staring over their shoulders or maybe he's got some kind of a dashboard, um, uh, you know, that, that sort of reporting on what kids are doing. And there are, there are some games that do that. Um, and thinking about, okay, well, so what are these, what are the decisions that this student made in the game? What insight might that give me um, into this kid's historical thinking, right? Um, or if it's enough of a quiz-like question, what insight might give, you know, might it give me into whether this kid even knows what the Sons of Liberty are, yeah. right? I mean, maybe that's just a straight up kind of standard quiz question. 
So that's one thing again, but what insight might it give in, you know, give me into, well, you know, is he thinking along the lines of what this young person at this time and the constraints under which that person was living, um, how might that person have behaved? Or is he really just showing more, more sort of presentist behavior? Like, this is what I want to do yeah. as, a, as a kid. Th that to me is the much more exciting um, and, and I think productive use mm -hmm. of, of games um, in, in the classroom is, is where you have educators who are prepared to build off of um, those activities. And then I would add even more exciting is when students are able to reflect on the relationship between their activities and the feedback that they're getting from mm -hmm. the game, right? Especially with respect to the subject matter. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two specific um, points there that I want, I want to talk about. The, the idea that just giving feedback doesn't really mean anything necessarily. Uh, the character and quality and the, the clarity of the feedback are very important. So when you're in the, the game situation, the feedback that you get from your choice has a real impact on what you do going forward in that game. So it's, it's actually affecting you. You know, you write a paper, you turn it in, a teacher has 26 other students who gave them papers. By the time you get your feedback, it's a week later, you feel like you've moved past it. When you're playing the game, you have that immediate feedback. And I think that leads to an, another point, being in the game and making these kinds of choices, I feel like builds a sense of, and I know you're big on this, a sense of empathy with the person who was making those decisions at that time period, you know, that printing a press apprentice who was actually making those real decisions. You build a sense of understanding where that person was coming from and all of the different factors playing on that person's decision-making. I kind of want to, I want to double down then on, on that role of historical empathy. What, what exactly is that? And how do, how does gaming specifically in social studies help build that or cultivate that within students? Uh, so the idea of historical empathy um, is if historical empathy is a kind of skill set, then it's a skill set associated with being able to understand that people in time um, had intentions, right? So, so historical empathy is basically being able to ascribe intentions to people in time. And it's, it's, in some sense associated with this, this concept that comes out of developmental psychology, right? Theory of mind, which is really just that. It's just being able to say others have intents, right? That are not necessarily mine, right? It's, it's being able, and, and being able to try to understand what it might be that's informing those intentions, right? Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily easy, by by the way, right? Um, yeah. And and it is something that develops over time. There is a cognitive component to it, and there's an affective component to it. Um, and historical empathy is really just saying, well, in addition to understanding um, that that other people are standing in different places than I am and have had different life experiences than I have. There's this additional layer of, and lived in a completely different time that had a, probably had a completely different culture, mm -hmm. right? And set of norms and set of expectations and set of responsibilities. Um, so it's, the, it's this additional layer of understanding that people in the past um, behaved differently, right? So there's this notion of the past being a foreign country. They do things differently there, yeah. right? And it's not because they're all stupid. Right. And often mm. what we will find with younger kids um, is that there is an assumption that, well, you know, they're just all sort of benighted and stupid. And if they only knew everything that we know now, of course, they would have done things differently. Yeah. Historical empathy sort of ideally um, tries to move us past that. Right. That mm -hmm. that um, that people don't simply engage in behaviors because they're stupid. Um, or, or are thinking incorrectly, yeah. right? That there are all kinds of things um, that inform um, their behaviors and that I need to think about them. If I wanna understand, if I, if I wanna uh, try to approach some understanding mm -hmm. of, of why they might be engaged in that, right? And that's, that's really ultimately what, what empathy, um, at least as some would define it. Yeah. Is, now, is it, def it definitely seems like what, 
historical empathy is definitely one of the basic precepts of historical thinking. You know, most historians don't look at a time period and go, yeah, well, they're just stupid. They only, they were enlightened. But I think it relates more broadly beyond just history. Building that kind of awareness in students has broad implications for all kinds of behaviors that go beyond looking to the past, perhaps into looking at other cultures, looking at your own culture. Because historical thinking is one of the many different pieces that go into a student who uses critical thought you know the we are talking about this and there's probably plenty of teachers listening to this yeah this makes sense I'd like to I'd like to do something like this in my classroom so to all the teachers who are listening right now that are interested in what we've been discussing but they already have a set curriculum they have limited resources what can they do I mean does it require these fancy systems or anything like that? Or is it something that you can do at a very basic level with limited resources? Or Uh, or does that require some ingenuity on the part of the teacher? Oh, I think all of those things. I, so there are, I mean, you know, again, to stick with the example I was giving you, so Mission US, that, that is a, you know, that is a what now, uh, 15 going on 20 year long project that has, um, uh, just whole, um, that has a lot of curriculum material developed with it, right? So you could actually say, well, you know, I'm going to do my, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to integrate this six-week piece into my unit um, on early American history or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and and that incorporates the game, but it also includes all these other classroom activities. Um, it includes presentations. It includes materials for differentiation. So mm-hmm. there, suddenly, we have something like a yeah. curriculum, okay. right? Um, but it doesn't have to be that extensive, right? Um, you could find, again, teachers do this all the time. Um, you could find games that are much less ambitious in their objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can think about, well, again, how does the doing in the game relate to the doing that I want to see happen outside of the game? Yeah. Now, maybe a game developer is providing you with that maybe they're not and that's where we hope if they're not um then we have prepared teachers to evaluate right to be able to think about games in terms of mechanics you know does the doing here actually somehow relate to the competencies in which i'm interested gamification is different right so yeah. so think about something like kahoot mm-hmm. I mean, kahoot it, it, which is widely used yeah. um kahoot is is essentially a, a piece of quizzing it's, yeah. it's a quizzing right? I mean, it does some other stuff, but, and, and that's fine as far as it goes, but um, I don't, th- there's no relationship between the mechanics in Kahoot mm. um, and the real world application of that knowledge, right? Again, yeah, yeah, unless yeah. I'm going on Jeopardy, um, which, which, is a, which is a different thing. Um, so, and that might suit your purposes and often does, right? Because teachers are engaged. I think, you're, I think it's you who said that Kahoot is for formative assessment. And that's true. I think, you know, because if you're using multiple choice quizzes mm-hmm. as a piece of your formative assessment, then something like Kahoot can be quite successful. If in addition to that, you want to do something like find a, um, an app, a, a tech environment that actually allows for kids to build some of these competencies and apply them, then there are there are games that can that can support that. And I've unfortunately seen, you know, in classrooms where Kahoot or something like that becomes a crutch and it's like you could do more. You know, again, I think this is a valuable point. You can have enriching and wonderful class discussions that have a- applicability way beyond the classroom. You could also have discussions that are it's just talking, you know, there's nothing really productive about it. And I think the same is definitely true for gaming, right? There's tremendous things you could do that have applications well beyond the classroom, but then you could also just be playing a game. In which case, and, and not only that, you could frivolous. be playing a bad game. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, there's plenty of poorly designed games, right? I mean, I think that's the that's the other thing here, it, and and this is where you know we used to talk about edutainment, right, or chocolate Oof. covered broccoli. The idea that if I just threw a quiz into a gamified thing that sends that shivers down my spine that was gonna be bad. Huh? so that sends shivers down my spines edutainment that phrase right. terrifies me <laughs> which is all you know is an interesting term in, in and of itself and it is freighted with baggage i mean there's there are some advantages to edutainment as well um but 
there are poorly, there are probably more poorly designed games than there are well-designed games, particularly yeah. in the education space, right? So even if you have the best of intents and you think, my gosh, I really am invested in game-based learning, um, if that game is not actually affording the opportunity to, um, to build and or practice those competencies, I, I mean, it might be doing something else and that might be okay for you as an educator, but if your goal is for them to build and practice those competencies, that game's not a great choice. We're kind of, uh, we're getting towards the end here and I want, I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I think we'll end with this. I, I found that there's, you know, certain values that accompany the underlying structure of a, of a school system, a school building, a specific classroom. You know, you have this incessant preparation for big standardized exams. To borrow a phrase, it's the banking system of education, this idea that you have, you know, rote memorization and students are an empty vessel and they must be filled to overflowing, all of that kind of thing. Those underlying values to me seem to be based on authority, obedience, passivity, trivial right. irrelevance, consumption, right. arguably useless values that contradict what we think students should be doing. So in a well-designed game, maybe similar to what we were talking about earlier, what are those values that a student can take away? Is it self-direction, self-discipline, clarity, depth, reason? What are, what are the underlying values that accompany a classroom that uses well-designed, well-placed games? Mm, what a great question. Um, well, I would, maybe I'll start with my values and maybe that helps me make my way into uh, what I think a company's values ought to be. So, you know, you used Paulo Freire as an example, and I, and I think that's a good one, right? So this notion of banking, um, you put in, you take out, you put in, you take out. Um, that has a sort of authoritative flavor. Now, interestingly, that I think does have a role in education, right? Um, I do think that there are um, um, core bodies of knowledge, even as I say this, I realize it's problematic, but I, there are things that collectively um, as social entities, we think we want our learners to know. And this is why education is, it's, it's mostly a political thing, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about the science of learning, okay, but it, education is, is really, a, is ultimately a very, very political decision for, you know, the, the point you're just making. Um, I would rather, I would rather see um, games that include some element of that. So to stick with history games, um, I would like history games to have, uh, to be based on um, what we think is factually correct, right? Um, and then maybe allow for alternative history making, um, which, which can be problematic for sure, right? Mm -hmm. um, that the idea that you can play history as a simulation and sort of change the past. But that's problematic from one perspective. From another perspective, it depends because it depends on what we do with that, right? If, if, the, if suddenly, if the game is just, well, look at that, you know, um, um, the, the, the fascists in Italy won World War II because I, I made them win yeah. um, World War II. And if we just cut it off from that, well, that's, um, that's a problem because in fact, that's not what happened, right? Yeah. Um, but if we try to understand, well, you know, what did, it, what did the kid do in the game um, such that that was the outcome? Well, that maybe starts to give us some more insight into the factors that influenced, I mean, that's probably a terrible example, Italian fascist, but it's what comes to mind. You know, um, um, what were the factors in the game that the kid manipulated? How is he or she thinking about those factors? Also, why did she make those decisions, right? Was she hoping that the fascist won? Maybe in and of itself, that's not a problem. I mean, sometimes you just do things, you know, you, you want to be transgressive. I mean, that's another yeah. great thing about games, right? Is just, you can transgress, you can, oh my God, the fascist won. Um, but there might be something satisfying about that at some level um, that I don't think we should be quick to, um, to, to jettison. So I think that, you know, the values there are exploration, mm -hmm. um, agency, um, curiosity, um, and openness, and, and openness to um, taking the risks that are associated with play. I mean, mm. play is a risky endeavor, right? That's, I think that's why 
we sort of start to strip it away as kids yeah. get older in schools because it is so risky and it's so potentially unpredictable. Um, but but I think becoming more comfortable with the risk taking and that we want, I think, to see in our learners, right? More comfortable with, I have this idea, I, I want to explore it and, and see what happens. Um, and, and being open to kids seeing those outcomes and mm -hmm. being open to engaging them in discussion um, about it. You know, th those are the kinds of, of values um, that, that I think those, those companies should be pushing, but more important, th those developers should be pushing, but more importantly, um, the school systems themselves that are using those tools yeah. um, should be pushing. When you were talking about, you know, you want a game that has a degree of factual correctness, but it could also get into this area of alter alternative history. It made me think about, you know, those, those reacting to the past games I played in college. And I was considering also a, a Quentin Tarantino movie. I was thinking about Inglorious Bastards. Mm -hmm. And I got to the end and I'm like, well, what the hell? They, they killed Hitler. This whole thing just went off the rails. It doesn't make it. I, I had like a negative reaction the first time I watched it. Now, of uh -huh. course, I kind of like the ending and it, it's whatever now, but I remember when I first watched it, I'm like, why did I react so strongly? I love the movie up, up till the end. Why did, what about it threw me off? Why, why was it him changing history so, so damaging to my enjoyment of the film? And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm in the classroom. We're doing, to, we're doing the French Revolution game. And, you know, the, the king survives and he's reinstalled into power and the whole revolution is quashed. But at that time, it didn't, it didn't bother me because then I'm picking up these lessons like, oh, well, some people didn't do what they were supposed to do because they were scared that there would be, you know, that it would fall back on them and they would lose the game. Or, you know, there, there were all these bigger lessons coming out, the lessons about, you know, people had to, you know, make some real, take some real risks, exactly, as you were talking about, or, you know, exploring all these different areas and these different emotions that were playing at this time period. And it builds a real understanding of what happened. Even though our French Revolution went off the rails and didn't look anything like the French Revolution, I learned more about the French Revolution from that by looking at the, the things we didn't do or the things they did. And it made me appreciate what happened there even more. So you're, you're right. Just ending it at the, oh, the fascist won, game over, let's move on, next lesson. Yeah, that's not, that doesn't have much value. But the really, and that's that Inglorious Bastards, movie's over, Nazis lost well before the war actually ended. You're right. There is this, you know, it's up to the teacher. The teacher really needs to allow the students to kind of, I don't want to say marinate, but really see the broader implications of the game. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I mean, just Inglorious Bastards is an example. I mean, um, so I'm a fan of revenge fantasies and, and I think, you know, certainly fit, I mean, any, any genre, um, can, can help with that and certainly games as well. Um, again, what do we do with it as educators? Do yeah. we just leave it at that? Well, if we do, I mean, that's criminal, right? Or yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's a problem. Then we're not, well, we're not doing what we should be doing as professional educators. But if we're honoring something about our kids that says, well, you know, there is something maybe cathartic about um, that, seeing that fantasy unfold. Mm -hmm. um, now, catharsis can be a problem, right? Yeah. Like Bertolt Brecht, I mean, think about, right? Like, catharsis that the problem with catharsis is it sort of takes all the energy out of you takes all the passion out of you and then mm -hmm. you leave and you say oh i feel better i don't have to do anything yeah right um and um you know one way of approaching these things is that well in fact enabling us to engage in this type of thinking and type of doing maybe energizes us more and that's what i hope that educators would do right is, is to build off of those experiences again you can't change the past yeah and we shouldn't want to i think our job is forever to try and just keep understanding to keep trying and peeling away the layers of human psychology and sociology to understand and there's no there's never going to be an answer um but that helps us understand those things um but then building from those and moving forward and 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 applying that in in other situations so so a, a broader a broader motivation in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I would. That's what I would argue, right? Yeah. Not all educators would argue that, but but that's what I would argue. Well, I really thank you for your time. I appreciated this. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Good, good. Thank you. I enjoyed well, it too. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for coming on. There you have it, folks. That was my conversation with Dr. Jim Diamond. I hope you got something out of that. I know I did. 
If you want more, you can go to decayofdiscourse.com. We have links to all kinds of suggested materials and suggested readings. There's a lot of interesting stuff there for you. A lot of interesting stuff, especially episode-specific stuff. So head over, check it out. While you're there, there's a comment section. Tell me what you thought of the episode. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get a nice little community going on our website. There's a lot of interesting things we could do there. I'd like to hear more. I got some new ideas, some new things I want to try out. We'll do it all together. This will be a good time. So thanks again for listening. I'm Thomas Thompson. Our in-house renaissance man is Woodrow Cower, doing some design, some writing, some editing. Helping out, keeping the show strong. Speaking of helping out to keep the show strong, thank you to all of you who have subscribed, followed us, signed up for our mailing list, give money on Patreon. However you could help out the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you. I'm Thomas Thompson. This is the K of Discourse. I'll talk to you soon.